So, as you know, uh, last week Martin kicked off our series on the Kingdom of God, and this morning I'm going to be dribbling forwards, ball at feet, taking it onwards, or as I rather prefer, Martin fired the starting gun and I'm going to be dashing around the first lap, baton in hand. Um, but it's a, a very long distance run that we're going to be doing. Many, many laps. <clears throat> but this first one uh, is uh, on a very important theme, a very important topic, some very important words. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The kingdom, the power, and the glory. And power and glory are essential to any understanding or thinking about the kingdom. They are almost integral to it. You might even say synonymous with it. There really is just another way of saying God's kingdom. Yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory is like saying yours is the kingdom, and the kingdom, and the kingdom. And we don't normally speak quite like that, unless you're an estate agent, extolling the virtues of location. Or a former prime minister who thought education was worth putting at the top of the list. If you've got memories that go back that far. <clears throat> oh, many of you do, I can tell, good. <clears throat> I was used to think that was a very fitting thing to put at the top of the list, but I did have to acknowledge that other things were important as well. But it's certainly a fitting end to any prayer that we bring before Almighty God to end by declaring that yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The kingdom, the power, and the glory. Now, last time I spoke, it was on hearing God, but I cheated a little bit by doing hearing God as king because I wanted already to bring something into this particular series. And if you can remember back five weeks, I think it was, I spoke on parts of the book of Revelation from chapter 1, the vision of Jesus, and from chapter 4, the vision of the throne room with the Father on the throne. And I said then that how important it was going to be as we get into the teaching on the kingdom, we kept this mighty vision before our eyes and indeed in our spirits, that we kept thinking about that glorious vision of Jesus as king, but also as father on the throne of heaven. And I want today to keep going on that. I want hopefully to enlarge that vision a bit more. And I'm almost hoping and praying that this will be what we do time and time and time again as we meet on Sundays, and indeed in other places as well. The other speakers will pick up this idea of the vision of God on the throne as we think about all the things that's involved in what Jesus proclaimed about the Father's kingdom. Now, this morning, I'm going to pause from time to time for a moment or two of reflection. So there will come two or three times a place where we will stop and think about what's already been said so that you can pray it through for yourself or talk to God a bit more about it. And then at the end, we're going back into worship. Jill will come and lead us again because I felt that as I was preparing this, even before I'd begun to prepare it, God said, I want you to end with worship. I want you to sing to me. I want you to sing your hearts out to me. So let's end like that, shall we? Let's bear that in mind as we think about the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Jesus said many things about the kingdom. It was his central theme. It was everything. 
But when he started off and said, the kingdom of God is at hand, or is near, he didn't have to explain what he meant by the kingdom of God. No one ever asked him. All the time he was teaching about the kingdom of God, no one came up to him and said, what is this new idea you're bringing? What is this strange concept that we need to get hold of? The Jews already knew something about the kingdom of God. They needed more, but they already had certain things that they had clearly in their understanding. They knew that God was king. They knew he always, always had been, always will be. They knew he had a kingdom from everlasting to everlasting. And they knew about his ruling activity that had existed even before our world began. Because God didn't suddenly become king at that point. So what kind of king did they know about? So I want to bring you some background today to what Jesus taught so that you understand better some of the things that he says and as we go through this series, some foundational things to help us. How did the Jewish people of the time know about God as king? Well, from their scriptures and from their history. Both of those were important. From their scriptures, from the very beginning, when they opened their scroll of Genesis, as we call it now, they heard a king issuing edicts, decrees, commandments, if you like. Let there be, let there be, ten times actually. If anyone asks you where the ten commandments are, you could say, well, in Genesis, Genesis chapter one. Ten times God says, let there be, or it says, and God said, I should say. Ten times we hear God saying something. And it was so, meaning his will was done. God said something and it happened. Here, they say, is a king at work, making things happen, ordering things into being. No arguments, no votes, no discussions, no alternative proposals. God said it and it was done. And... It was good. And good means it was exactly what he wanted. It means it was just right for his purposes. Everything happened according to his will. And the Jews knew without any shadow of doubt that they were created by Almighty God. No confusion, no alternative theories. They knew what they knew. And they also knew that God created it all by himself. Well, they also knew that the Spirit was involved. They didn't yet know how much Jesus was involved because they didn't have that understanding of the Godhead and the Trinity, if you like. But they knew that he had no external help. No other gods were involved. This was all done by his power and for his glory. It was their God alone who had done this, not a mixture of different gods. And as a result, a new type of creation had come into being, a new cosmos in which God could also be king and also into existence a new kind of being who could experience his kingship, namely us, us. Our world was created by the king of another world that already existed, the heavenly realms. Our world was created by someone who was already king in another dimension. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah? 
Don't you think that's worth telling people about, that it's worth dwelling upon? And to start off with, on Earth, there was a special little place created called Eden, created, prepared by God, that his kingdom on Earth could begin. And it was only small to start with, with just two people and a few rules. But it was enough. There was a king, two subjects, and some rules. Just enough to get it going. And he gave those decrees or rules to those two people to obey for their own good, as also to show their obedience to their sovereign. Because they had no doubt, these two people, that they were created. No confusion. They knew who their king was. They knew who to obey. They knew, no, they knew to whom to owe allegiance and their very existence. Is that your understanding? Is that how you understand your origin? You have been called into existence by the King of Heaven. Would you want any other option, by the way? That's how you've been called into existence. That's our first point in which we're going to just pause for a moment while we reflect on that. God as Creator King, who has brought everything we see into existence, including ourselves. Let's reflect on that for a moment. So the kingdom of God on earth started well, small but well. Then it all went wrong. There was another creature there, already in rebellion, already not accepting God's rule. And he whispered to them, you know you can have your own kingdom? Just follow my lead. Follow your own inclinations. You can have your own kingdom and it will feel really, really good. And unfortunately they fell for it, or as I call it, the big crash. We call it the fall usually, but that's not a word in the Bible, but I can change it there for the big crash. But basically it meant all fell down, all fall apart, everything went wrong. But the Jewish people knew that God was still king. That hadn't changed. He hadn't fallen down or fallen apart. He hadn't given in to temptation. He hadn't bowed down and worshipped any other gods. So they knew that God was still king, but things weren't quite right. So how did they start to think about the kingdom of God on earth? How could it come to earth? How could it be apparent? What had to happen? And they said that three things had to happen if the kingdom of God was going to be apparent on earth. One, the spirit of God had to move in supernatural power. There had to be something happen that could not be attributed to men. No human help at all. And in fact, they used the phrase the finger of God because the finger of God was their expression, their idiom, if you like, for the spirit of God. And when the finger of God moved in supernatural power 
and they probably saw this happening in Genesis 1. It was part of their understanding of this. They understood that that was the beginning of the possibility of God's kingdom, something in which he was direct, directly active without human help and was seen to do so. That was the first stage. The second stage was those that received this or benefited from it had to acknowledge him as Lord and King. They had to see that this was indeed the almighty sovereign at work. And then a third thing had to happen as well. Those same people had to go on to become obedient to the will of God. Or as we've just been putting it, have your way in me. So three things then. The spirit of God moving in supernatural power an activity in a way that could not be attributed to men, an acknowledgement as such by praising and worshipping him as king, and then submission to his will in their lives. Now, where did they get that from? Did they just sit down one day and think, that sounds good, I'll make that up or something? No, as I said, they got it from their scripture and their history. And in particular, they got it from the big defining event in their history that shaped them forever. And this was the Exodus. And if you want to follow this through sometime in your own time, start to read from Exodus chapter 7 onwards, and you'll see these phases. So in Exodus chapter 7 onwards, what happens is that Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh, and they do their let my people go thing. But God had actually said to them, oh, and make sure you do some miracles at the same time. Take your staff, because I want to do certain uh, remarkable things with it. And they did. And Exodus chapter 7 onwards was the beginning of an extraordinary outburst of supernatural power and activity that went through all the plagues and the Passover itself, the parting of the Red Sea, or that raging sea that we sang about earlier, and the closing of it again. Miracle after miracle. Exodus chapter 7 to 14 is definitely the supernatural activity of God at work including all the plagues. Of course, there's 10 of those as well, which may or may not be uh, interesting. And in fact, as you read through that, you'll come across this phrase, the finger of God. It's there in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. And in fact, it's not said so much by the Jewish people, but by the Egyptians themselves. You see, when they started doing these miracles, Pharaoh got his own men together what they called his magicians or sorcerers, and said, can you do this as well? And at first they could. They could do something out of their secret arts that it says. But there came a point when it actually says, in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 19, that these men said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't do this. They recognized who it was. But you see, they didn't go on to phases two and three. They recognized that this was beyond them. But did they accept Israel's God as king? Did they say, let's worship Yahweh then? This is what we need. Of course not. It says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and they did not listen. And as a result, he sent his men to their death. But Israel did go on to phase two. Because if you keep reading through, after all these miracles, you get to Exodus chapter 15, which is the song of Moses and Miriam. And in this song, they acknowledge 
that this has been Almighty God at work. This has been the King of Heaven. Just some verses from it. Again, use uh, Exodus 15 in your worship and devotions at some time, if you like. See how this comes through. But here's some verses. It opens, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Highly exalted. Verse 6, your right hand, Lord, was majestic in power. Verse 11, who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? And they conclude still song, verse 18, the Lord reigns forever and ever. And this was told the first time in scripture that Israel really called out to God as Lord and King in this particular way, as a an acknowledgement of the consequence of his supernatural power in rescuing them, redeeming them. And then the third stage, yes, that happened next, because they moved on to Sinai where there's even more supernatural activity going on, and God declared his law, his will for their lives. And following Torah was to be an indication that they had fully recognized God as their king and wanted to be part of his kingdom on earth. Now, of course, in the end, that's where it fell down a little bit, or a lot, because they couldn't do it all. God's will was still not done. There was no final kingdom. However, this was their thinking at this time, and it feeds right through into the New Testament and to the time of Jesus. Let me just summarize it again a little bit, and then we'll pause to reflect on it a little bit. The kingdom of God for them meant that God himself was at work in a supernatural way. As a result, he was recognized and acknowledged as Lord and King, and obedience to his will and word would follow. Does that make sense? Because the kingdom of God was not to be an object. It wasn't to be something independent of God. It wasn't to be something that we do, but that we respond to once God starts to work in a miraculous way. And how do you respond? In praise and worship, acknowledging him, and then in accepting his will or his way in us. We'll pause again for a couple of minutes to absorb those particular details uh, and to uh, talk to God about it yourself. So we'll have another reflection now.
Now, if that understanding was truly the background to the things that Jesus said, that it was part of their understanding at that time, then you'd expect to see evidence of this within the teaching of Jesus, and indeed we do. And here's one or two little things about this. For instance, you probably know this, that in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, if you can complete that. But only the one who does the will of my Father. It's no good doing the first two stages and not accepting the third. There were plenty of people who saw what Jesus was doing. This was another time of supernatural activity, wasn't it? When Jesus came, there was another sudden outburst of miraculous events. In fact, it started with his own conception. That was what started things off in that sense. But Jesus was displaying, through the Spirit of God, the supernatural activity of God. And many were recognize it, recognizing it and calling him Lord, Lord. But he adds this extra warning. That in itself is not everything. What about doing the will of my Father who is in heaven? That was still very much part of it. But some didn't even get to that stage. And in Luke chapter 11 and verse 20, when Jesus has been doing lots more miracles and particularly driving out demons, he says this. This is in Luke chapter 11 and verse 20. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, oh, interesting, he's using that phrase, the finger of God, meaning the spirit of God, and you'll find in the equivalent in Matthew, that's how it's put, just so that we get that idiom translated, if you like. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. But the problem was that some of the Jewish leaders, when they saw what Jesus was doing, didn't even attribute it to God Almighty. Some of them said he does this by the power of the evil one. Only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, can this fellow drive out demons. What a thing to say. Jewish leaders. Horrible. And that's why Jesus says that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. There's no way you can be part of the kingdom that way. And in Matthew, he says this about this very situation to these people. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit, meaning in this way, about this sort of thing, will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. It was that serious. You had to see the supernatural activity of God within the life and ministry of Jesus, recognize that it was from God, that this was the king at work, and then bow down to his will. Now, in that phrase comes another interesting thing that we need to understand about the Jewish understanding of the kingdom, because Jewish teachers for a long time have been speaking about two ages. There are two ages, this age, and the age to come. This age is sometimes called this present age, or even this evil age, (laughs) to distinguish it, and then an age to come. In some expressions, it might be this world and the world to come, because the Hebrew word olam can mean age, it can mean world, that's no distinction there at all. But it was this transformation that was going to come 
Something would change something from this age to the age to come. They just didn't know exactly how or exactly when. But they started to believe in this big cataclysmic apocalyptic sort of change that was going to come at one day. You see, their history had continued to be one of failure. Their own kings just hadn't been up to it. Even the one that was after God's own heart, even the one that was meant to be wiser than anyone else, human history, their history, showed that this was not going to be the way that the kingdom of God would come. But after all their disappointments and failures and exile and so on, the prophets began to show them a new way and said, there's someone coming, you know, one day. Think of him as Messiah, Mashiach, anointed. He'll come from the line of David, but he won't be like just another king that you've ever had. This won't be like the usual historical means of doing things. This will transcend human history. And this was their great hope. This was what they were waiting for when it says they were waiting for the kingdom of God. This is what they were praying for. This is what they wanted to happen. A mighty manifestation of God's power which would sweep away the wicked kingdoms of this world and establish something that only God could set up and maintain. And you'll notice in Jesus' teaching he did not revoke that idea. He did not change that thinking. He taught about the two ages. As we've just said, this age or the age to come. When he said that about those who were speaking against the Holy Spirit, why it was so significant is that if you can't be forgiven in the age to come, then you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven became synonymous again with the age to come. It was just another way of describing it, the final ultimate kingdom. And if you speak against the Holy Spirit, then you've got no way in, so to speak. But there's other occasions too when Jesus using the phrase about this, this age, this present age, and the age to come. There's one occasion when he is replying to Peter and the disciples and saying, well, we've given up an awful lot here, you know. Uh, what, what's going to happen to us? And Jesus promises them that they will receive a great deal still in this present age and in the age to come, eternal life. And there's another occasion when he talks to the Sadducees who are trying to tell him that there's no such thing as the resurrection, you know, which actually puts a you know, bit of a dampener on the whole idea of the age to come uh, and the kingdom of God if there's no resurrection. Um, and Jesus has to speak into that very severely. And he says, uh, well, in, in this age, people will marry and be given in marriage. But those who take part in the age to come will never die and they will never, mar sorry, will never marry. Uh, that those who take part in the age to come and in the resurrection of the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And then he goes on to add that those who take part in the age to come will never die. So those are the occasions when Jesus is still talking about this age, the age to come. And this idea still extends into early Christian thinking. Uh, Paul writes in these terms. I'm not going to take you through them. You can read the whole of Paul and see if you can find them for yourself. That's a little exercise for you. Oh, well, at least I'll give you Galatians, 1 Corinthians and Ephesians, just to cut your homework down a little bit, perhaps. But Paul still speaks about the age, present age, and the age to come. Because this wasn't anything that was new. It wasn't something that was going to be changed in what Jesus said. But what Jesus did say put a different slant on it. Because when he said the kingdom of heaven, or God, is 
at hand or near, he's basically saying, you know, something started already. It's here now. In fact, it's so close, it's at hand. There you are, reach out, get hold of it. That's what near means when you're reading the scriptures, and it's there all through the Old Testament. Again, uh, I'm not going to give you examples here, but how near was near when Jesus said that the kingdom of God is now near or has drawn near? He meant it's as close as that. No distance, no gap. It's just there right now. You can reach out. Not near like Amersham is near to Chesham, where you've got to travel some distance. Not near like Christmas is near. Don't panic, it's still six months away, but, but it'll soon be near, won't it? But when the kingdom of God, when Jesus came, suddenly there was something immediate, something apparent now, and you can reach out and take it. And Jesus was going to speak into this time and again in the rest of his ministry through the parables and other things that he taught where he wanted to show people that there was something growing now that would develop and become bigger and bigger. Those are for other laps in this particular race that we're going around. I don't want to get into that at the moment. Now, just one other thing on this. John the Baptist, when he was in prison, began to worry because he'd also preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, but he was still expecting this big apocalyptic end-time judgment thing because he'd talked about winnowing forks and threshing floors and unquenchable fire and all the rest of it. He was preaching it still sort of in that context. And Jesus, when John the Baptist expressed his concern and puzzlement about this, sent his disciples to say, just have another think. Just see what I'm doing. And you'll realize that actually this has begun now, just in a different way from what you originally thought. The kingdom has now come in your midst. From the moment that Jesus was conceived, when the power of the Most High came upon Mary, that was the beginning of something. But then Jesus left. Suddenly one day he was there, Next day, well, the same day, he'd gone. How do you have a kingdom without a king? We're going to pause at this point, not so you can answer that question, because I'll pick it up in a minute, but so you can think about the things that I've just been saying uh, in the last few minutes. So we'll just have another little pause for you to reflect further. So suddenly the king had gone, and yet the kingdom had come. He was still going to come again in the future, because he was going to come back. But what's going to happen in the immediate? 
Well, Jesus, before he left, had promised them something very important. He's spoken about it several times in his teaching, and just before he left, he actually said, if you wait, stay here, you will experience power. And Jesus said, when I leave, I will send the Holy Spirit in power in order to continue what you've already been experiencing and understanding. There's a rather strange little verse uh, tucked away in, in Matthew, it's in Mark actually, Mark chapter 9, where Jesus says, some standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom coming in power. That's caused a lot of head scratching as to what he really meant then. Did he actually mean that he was gonna come back very quickly and establish the kingdom that way? Uh, did it mean that he was promising a huge lifespan extension to those that were privileged enough to be listening to him? Uh, no. But presumably he was talking about those who would experience what was going to happen at Pentecost. Because Pentecost would continue what Jesus had begun. So the kingdom would remain on earth, growing, developing. And what an explosion of power that was, if you think about it. More miracles were happening more people were coming into the kingdom, 3,000 on that first day. And the churches grew and the word of God multiplied and everything began to develop from Jerusalem and onwards towards the end of the earth. You see, before Jesus did leave, he sent out his disciples on several occasions because it was their role as his disciples to actually say and do what he had been doing. That's what discipleship is all about. And when he sent them out, do you remember what he told them to say? And do you remember what he told them to do? Here's a couple of uh, occasions. There's one uh, in Luke and one in Matthew, chapter 10. But he sent out the 12 and he said, As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal those who are ill. Raise the dead. Cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons. Don't just talk about it. <laughs> You've got a great message. But where's the power? This is what we need as well. And he sent out the 72. Heal those who are ill and tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. So this is what they had to do. They had to not only talk about it, but demonstrate the kingdom in the way that Jesus did. Jesus did many miracles to bring people into an awareness of the nearness now of the kingdom of God so that they could respond in praise and worship acknowledgement and also submit to his teaching and he sent out his disciples to do the same both word and deed were important I know words themselves can be powerful I always hope that <laughs> as a teacher um, but sometimes it needs deeds as well Paul says this in his letters my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the spirit's power You'll find that in 1 Corinthians 2. And when he wrote to the Thessalonians, he said, the gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. Continuing what Jesus had begun. Matthew 24 and verse 14 is an important verse. Mike sort of mentioned it briefly, uh, whatever it was, a couple of weeks ago. And I'm sure this again will be picked up maybe time and time again in the weeks to come. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world and then the end will come. Now let me explain something here, two things perhaps. Firstly, the word preach isn't what we normally do in church. 
It's not what I'm doing now. That's not what Jesus is saying. In most places, it's better translated as proclaim. Don't just put on a preaching series, in other words. Proclaim. In fact, there's an even better word for it. It's announce. In fact, there's an even better word than that. It's herald. Herald the kingdom. Announce it. And in fact, it's not herald the kingdom. It's herald the good news of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom. Tell people that there's some really good news because there's another kingdom to the one that you're used to. Because most people are living in the wrong kingdom. Is that not right? If nothing else, they're living in their own little kingdom. They're living for their power and their glory. And our job is to announce that there is another kingdom. And you can enter into it now. You can begin to live in it now, enjoy it now. You can serve God in it now. You can get to know the king of heaven now. And then you've got an exciting future ahead of you as well. The gospel of the kingdom should shape our mission, our evangelism, and so on. I'm not a missionary, I'm not an evangelist. I'll let others pick that up and explain it better. But I do believe from what I understand of this verse and indeed the Gospels generally, that our message is the good news of a kingdom that you can start to experience now, if you make that choice. Start now, get ready. Because it's already here as well as something coming. There's an eternal future. It's interesting as well that I haven't quite quoted that verse fully, but it's proclaim or announce the good news of the kingdom as a testimony to all nations, to the nations. It's not just for individuals, which is important as well, don't get me wrong, but this is gospel of the kingdom is a testimony to other nations, to other kingdoms, basically to say, you haven't got this right. There's something bigger and better. And some of us are in it now, and there's more to come. It's a testimony almost against other nations for doing things their way, for their power and their glory, because that's how most nations and kingdoms on earth are run. So it becomes a testimony for other nations. And I'll make one final point before we uh, go back into worship, because I say we want to end by praising God, hopefully strongly out of what we've been thinking about. When Jesus announced uh, the kingdom to start with and said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it's near, he actually said at the beginning, repent for the kingdom. Now John had said exactly the same thing. And when he said repent, it's clear what he meant because he practiced a baptism for repentance, a change of lifestyle, a change of morality, that your lives would change. And of course that's always part of it. And it's certainly what Jesus would intend as well. But as Martin said last time, repent also means have a change of mind. Rethink this. And when it comes to the kingdom, the Jews, they didn't have it wrong. They just didn't quite have it all yet. They hadn't thought it all through. They needed to do some more thinking. They needed to expand their thinking. They needed to enlarge their vision. And I think that's part of the message to us to repent in the sense of, let's think this through. Let's think this through far more than we've done before because this will change everything. Not just our mission, our evangelism, our worship, our teaching and so on. It will change our lives, it will change our community. We need to repent, not that we've necessarily done anything wrong, but that we probably haven't yet done enough or done it in the right sort of way. 
Is that what Jesus might have meant? To stretch our thinking to challenges and so on. Now, I've been thinking about the kingdom now for a few months, ever since it was announced that this is what we're going to be doing. And now we've just started together. So I've had a bit of a head start. And I know from my own experience there's quite a bit of rethinking that I've had to do and really sort things out a bit better, a bit firmer, a bit more clearly in my own mind to make sure I understood something when I'd done lots and lots of different things. But had I really grasped what Jesus was saying, what the Bible was saying, did I really understand this? And I still feel that I'm at the beginning of this long journey, race, (laughs) whatever we want to call it. But I'm prepared to rethink. I'm prepared to get a bigger view, a bigger vision. And I invite us all to take part in that. Uh, would Jill now and the team come and um, get ready to uh, lead us in some songs? And while that's happening, I'm going to read uh, a couple of passages from Scripture. And by that I mean from the Old Testament, in particular from the passages that was known at the time of Jesus and would uh, influence their thinking. So I'm going to read. You can look at it later. Firstly from Daniel 7. Again, this idea of bigger vision. And this now is Daniel. It's very similar to the one in Revelation, isn't it? Daniel says, As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I love that phrase, the Ancient of Days, by the way. I'm so glad that the, the God who's in control of the universe is ancient. I don't want a new kid on the block when it comes to ruling the universe. I want someone who's been there all the time, the Ancient of Days. And his clothing was as white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool and so on. And in my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, And he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And one more verse which is from Chronicles. Do read Chronicles sometimes, you never know what gems you might come across. This is in 1 Chronicles 29. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Amen.